All right, so we're going to be starting a series called Symbols. And the reason that we're doing this series is because there are certain things in which God has said, I want you to remember this. And in so doing that, he punctuated it with something for us to remember. Now, we all have symbols within our lives that we recognize, things that we see, things that we, uh, just just a glance we get to know. I, I had the opportunity, Christy invited me to come do a career day over at uh, Red Bank Elementary last week, and so we were talking about marketing and graphic design, and one of the things I did with the kids was uh, one, of the, one of the kids, I would have them read kind of this little you know, biography of, of the company Nike, and so they would stumble through all the words and read it, and then would flash a picture up just of the Nike symbol, and immediately there are some symbols that just communicate to us, either because we've seen it several times, or just the, the image is so good it communicates, you know, literally a thousand words. Uh, those symbols remind us of something. Now, some of the symbols that we see every day, you are going to know. In fact, most of these symbols, I I pulled a few together. Most of these, you may know. Uh, What's that first first picture? What is that? A little washed out. Statue of Liberty. What does this communicate? Freedom? Welcome? All right. Y'all need some more coffee. Y'all need some more coffee. All right. Next one. Oh, that's better. What is that? Liberty Bell, yes. Next one. Oh, do you know what that stands for? Your existence for the last several months is what that stands for right there. What does rain mean to you? It means life to some and death to others, right? All right, next one. Ah, what is that? Uh, no, it's just an M. <laughs> no, it, McDonald's. You recognize McDonald's, and a few of you might recognize this next one. This represents saliva forming in your mouth right at this very moment is what that represents. It doesn't say Krispy Kreme anywhere, but you've seen it enough that when you see the hot now sign, some of you actually have a physical reaction to this symbol, right? You're like, oh, time's turning. Got to get get in there. Got to get the next one. All right. What's that? See, you know all these. Next one. Now, we have symbols within our faith. Hopefully you know what that is. It's the cross. Now, this is one of the images that are a symbol. We may or may not talk about that through this series. One of the things that God commanded the Hebrews to do was they were to not only know God's word and memorize it, they were to make it a part of their life. And, and God told Moses to tell them that you are to take his word and you are to tie it to your wrist and on the frontlets between your eyes to take his word and to, you know, covet, hold it, remember it. And while this is not how they practiced it initially, later on the Pharisees actually started this practice of actually doing it. And scripture says some of the Pharisees actually made the box that held scripture on their forehead so big so they would look pious and holy and spiritual. They they would hold, make that so large. But literally, this is one of the things that he called them to do in Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. You shall lay these, up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So this is one of the ways that they can visually remember. Next. Today, we're going to be talking about the rainbow. And I know that you're excited you got out 
this morning to talk about the rainbow, but I'm going to tell you, this may be the very best, this may be the very best one in the whole series that we're going to talk about today. As we get into the rainbow and the symbol of the rainbow, it means lots of different things to lots of different people. For some, it's just pretty. It's, just, it's a color wheel. For others, it, it symbolizes a, a movement. Uh, for us, as we read through Scripture, we often look at the rainbow and we think immediately of who? Noah, yes, but we should be thinking immediately of who? God, thank you. You all are on it. Did have some coffee. Um, and as we come to the rainbow and as we think about all of these things, one of the big pushbacks when you get into the story of Noah is did the flood really happen? Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time debating on whether or not the flood actually happened. When we look through Scripture, and if you're a student, not just of the words of Scripture, but how Scripture came to be, you will know that Genesis is not an eyewitness account. We don't have the words of Noah. We don't have the words of Abram and Abraham. We have those words that were given. Does anybody know where the book of Genesis came from or even the rest of the Torah? Who wrote them? Does anybody know? Does anybody know? Moses. And it is by tradition that says Moses was given the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament. Excuse me. Moses was given that on Mount Sinai as he received the Ten Commandments. Now, interestingly enough, you will not find that said anywhere in Scripture. Instead, this is what has been passed down by tradition time and time again by those from from parents to children, from their children to their children, and on down the road until this had become such a part of history that the understanding is Moses wrote it. Now, some of the problems with Moses writing all of Genesis is that it actually incorporates Moses' death. Now, I don't know about you, if somebody writes a book and they are able to detail their death in that book, I'm going to buy it. So it does not appear that Moses wrote all of Genesis. Someone else may have finished it. The popular idea is that maybe Joshua did. Maybe Joshua came along and finished the account, including the end of Moses' life. But it is attributed to Moses. Now, there's a lot of question for those who study Scripture to believe whether this story that I'm about to share with you is real or not. Is it just a story? Is it just allegory? Is it just something where, you know, God wanted us to get an idea of the beginning of creation? And I will tell you, it is not my purpose to tell you whether or not this was real or not. You have to come to that conclusion. For me, I have decided, and I do believe, that these events happened. Did they happen exactly the way that we understand them in popular myth and story? I don't know. But there is a lot of evidence that you can look at. As you look through some of the archaeological evidence, you'll find that not only are people finding marine uh, fossils at the top of huge mountains, it's interesting that you will find whale and marine life fossils on the top of the Andes Mountains, 5,000 feet up. Now, the popular understanding of how they got there is that the mountains started underwater, (laughs) And over 5 million or more years, the mountain continued to rise and it brought up the fossils with them. Did that happen? I, I don't know. We don't, we don't see that happening, but it is possible the way tectonic plates work. For me, it doesn't really matter. Other archaeologists have found whole encampments at the bottom of the Black Sea where they weren't at one time underwater. 
One of the greatest indications that this story should at least give us some pause to say, you know what, maybe this did happen, is the fact that every ancient culture on the face of the planet has a story about a worldwide flood. Now, they each will twist it in a little different way. It always follows their understanding, their faith, their religion. But the fact that every ancient society has a story of a worldwide flood should make, make us pause. Why is that? On every continent of the world. As we look at these stories, the point is not whether or not we believe that the flood happened exactly the way Popular tradition says it did, but it's what God did in the midst of this story. So as we look at the rainbow, what I want to do is start from the beginning, and I'm going to be sharing with you some quotes. I shared this, I meet with some guys on Wednesday nights, and we just talk about some stuff, and uh, I've been reading with, with a group of pastors from all different backgrounds and denominations, uh, uh, some of the writings of St. Athanasius. St. Athanasius was the Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. He's considered one of the patriarchs or what we call the a patristic. He's not a patriarch as in, as in uh, Abraham or, or uh, any of his offspring, but he's a patristic. In other words, he's kind of a church father. He lived right around the time of 300 to 375 AD. And he taught us a lot about what Jesus is not only doing for us, but why we needed him. And so as we go through the story of the rainbow, I don't just want to focus on the rainbow itself, but I want to focus on the covenant in which God was making with us and why he did it. So let's start from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and verse 27, God talks about what life was supposed to be like for you, what he intended for you, what he intended for me. And if we're going to understand this covenant, we have to understand how it all begins. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I want you to understand you were made and created to be like God, not better than God, not divine as God is divine, though you were created to hold a divine element as God did. You were created in his likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. I want you to understand, if, we're gonna, if we are, are, are truly going to come to an understanding of the rainbow and what the covenant means that God's making with us, we have to know that God created you to be like him and to live in paradise. Whatever your hope is of heaven, you were made to live there from the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, we walked with God. We talked with God. We were like Him. How were we like Him? Is it because we look like Him? Does He have two arms and two legs? Well, possibly, although we don't necessarily know that to be true from Scripture. But we have His characteristics. And one of the most important characteristics you have that no other part of creation has is the the ability to reason to ration, to think, to consider, to have deeper thought. But you were made to be like God. And if we understand what you were made to be like, and then we understand what happens when sin entered into the world, we begin to understand God's work from then till now, till the time that Jesus returns. 
Because the story of the rainbow is a story of redemption. It is the beginning of the story of redemption. But like every culture that goes through a specific or a long period of time between God's promise and the fulfillment of God's promise, people have lost hope that it is true. We see whenever there are long spans of time, whole cultures just kind of walk away from their faith. We look at the time of the period between the last prophecy and the coming of Jesus. We see the nation of Israel struggling to truly maintain their identity and maintain their focus of worshiping God. As Rome came in, it changed the whole dynamic and they began to question, they began to wonder, when will it be? If you look back and you understand the history of what happened there, some people took it upon themselves to try to hurry God up. (laughs) So they began rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, believing that the Messiah was going to come only to redeem their nation so they would be a strong, sovereign nation, looking over the entire world with no one to challenge them. And so different people would come in, and one of the popular beliefs of Barabbas is that Barabbas was one of these revolutionaries. When Jesus came and they looked at Jesus, they said, this is just another Messiah. Because other people had decided, I'm tired of waiting on God to do this, so I'm going to do it myself. So the time that the priesthood is corrupted, even more so than normal. (laughs) And they're no longer serving God. They're no longer looking after God. They're no longer being at a place to point people to God. Instead, they're all looking after themselves. I believe today we're in one of those moments because it's been 2,000 years since Jesus died on the cross and he said, I'm coming back. And some people are refusing to believe that's actually going to happen. Maybe it's not real. Maybe it's not true. Maybe this didn't happen. And this is one of the reasons that God has given us symbols and one of the reasons I believe he gave us the rainbow. And it is the first symbol that he gave us to remember, to know this is true, to believe, to have hope. In the moments in which we're waiting for him to fulfill his promise and for Jesus to return, it is to remind us that we have a future and we have a hope. God created you to be like him and to live in paradise. This is what uh, St. Athanasius said. He said, he made all things through his own word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Among these things of all things upon earth, he had mercy upon the human race. And seeing that by the principle of its own coming into being, it would not be able to endure eternally. He granted them a further gift, creating human beings not simply like all the irrational animals upon the earth, but making them according to his own image, giving them a share of the power of his own word, so that having, as it were, shadows of the word and being made rational, they might be able to abide in blessedness, living the true life, which is really that of the holy ones in paradise. This is what was intended for us. This is what Jesus came to restore to us. Yet as we look at what was intended, what we know is that creation was corrupted. Creation was corrupted. You and I live in a corrupted creation. It is not as God had intended. Yet he gave the vehicle by which it could be corrupted. 
He allowed the opportunity for Adam and Eve to sin. He put two trees in the garden and he said, don't eat of these trees. And they ate anyways. And they were cast out. Now, we follow through the book of Genesis. What we find is that this was not an isolated instance. It wasn't the kind of thing that they got kicked out and they said, you know what, Adam? You know what, Eve? We kind of messed up here. Let's not do that anymore. Let's, let's renew our call to be like God. That is not what happened in the earth. And instead, corruption, as it often does, just spreads and it grows. And it grows to the point that God is going to do something about it. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. And then verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now what we see just in those few words is that God looks out and we have not only continued into corruption, we are fully corrupted. All of creation is. And God says, I regret making them. I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to destroy them. Now, Athanasius will make the argument that God being a good God cannot create something which he himself said was good and then abandon it to corruption. How could a good divine being who is capable of anything take his creation and leave them corrupted? He must do something about this and God being good says I'm going to blot them off the face of the earth but yet God in his mercy and love found favor in Noah this does not mean that Noah is without fault or Noah is without sin but it does mean that God looked down and had mercy and through Noah was going to rescue the human race although it would be a process and all of the rest of the old testament and all of the new is about the rescue that began as God looked down and saw Noah and had favor on him. You and I have God's favor because God first gave it to Noah. God's patience with sin and corruption, it ran out. Athanasius said this, he said, For bringing them into his own paradise, he gave them a law, so that if they guarded the grace and remained good, they might have life of paradise without sorrow, pain, or care, besides having the promise of their incorruptibility in heaven. But if they were to transgress and turning away become wicked, they would know themselves enduring the corruption of death according to nature and no longer live in paradise. This is where we are. But thereafter dying outside of it would remain in death and in corruption. In other words, it was not going to get better. He goes on and he says, Thus then God created the human being and willed that he should abide in incorruptibility. But when humans despised and overturned the comprehension of God, devising and contriving evil for themselves, as was said in the first work, then they received the previous threatened condemnation of death and therefore no longer remained as they had been created 
but were corrupted as they had contrived. And seizing them, death reigned. We were like zombies. We were dead men and women walking. The corruption had fulfilled its course. We had been removed from what we had been created for. That which God had wanted for us was gone. The paradise in which he had created for us to walk in, we were cast out. We were going to have no part of that anymore. And while God was patient, what he watched in his patience was sin continue to increase to the point where he says, uh, every thought is on evil continually. And we see one of the darkest moments, if not the darkest moment in all of Scripture, when he says, I'm going to blot them out. And you know the story. I'm not going to go through the whole story. God's patient with sin and corruption ran out. The problem is Athanasius describes it. Is how to, what does a good God do? He says this, therefore, since the rational creatures, you and me, were being corrupted and such works were perishing, what should God being good do? You know, it's like when you're in charge of something and it goes south, what do you do? Maybe it's fun, you're cooking, comes out of the oven, oh, that doesn't look right, (laughs) that doesn't smell right, I don't think I want to taste it, what do you do? Toss it. But God being good, he couldn't just toss it. God being good couldn't just say, you're done. You had your chance. You lost it. Now, that's the way some of us parent, right? (laughs) You had your chance. It's over. It's over for you. But God being good, can't a good God who is divine, who is omniscient, who is all-powerful, can a good God just simply wipe out his creation and still be seen as a good God? And as we look at that question, it's a question each one of us has to wrestle with as we understand the character of God. But as we look at God's work in Scripture, God said His goodness would come out in His mercy and His love because God is love then as in now. And in His love, He looked down and He saw one man who walked with Him who was seen as righteous. His name was Noah. Through Noah, God chose to rescue his creation. This is why the rainbow is important. We're getting to the rainbow. Genesis 6, chapter 9 says it's about Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Can you imagine having that conversation with God? Good talk, God. Good talk. (laughs) Let's do it again. Again, the point with Noah is not that he was without fault. In fact, if we follow the story of Noah and we understand God did not pick him because he was sinless, we understand Noah does not remain sinless. He never was sinless. In fact, after the flood story is over, the story takes a very deep turn for him. I'll let you go and read that. We have different age groups in here. 
But I encourage you, I encourage you to, to look at the story of Noah. Look at the character of Noah. Recognize that God's redemption and God's rescue was not dependent on him being perfect or being sinless. God did not say after Noah fell, at least after we read about him falling, God did not say, oops, I made a mistake. I've changed my mind. But God does follow through. We do know that he does. Noah builds an ark. He and his family get on board along with two of every kind of animal, the story goes. While others laughed and while others made fun, when the rains came, they closed up the ark and they survived. For 40 days and 40 nights, the rains came, the entire earth was flooded Until eventually he sent out a dove who returned with a sprig of new growth in its mouth to announce that the judgment was over. The waters would recede, and as the waters receded, Noah would come out, Noah would speak with God, and Noah told, or excuse me, God told Noah what his plan was, and his plan today is still that. I am going to redeem the creation, I am going to bring you back to where you were, and I promise I am not going to ever wipe you out again because why wipe us out if he's going to redeem us? He chooses a path of redemption over punishment. What we do have to understand through this story is, and this is why so many people reject Christianity, is because we are at our core deserving of destruction. One of the reasons I believe that God does this and he wipes out all living earth as far as on the land... And all people, other than Noah and his family, was to demonstrate to us the corruption in which you and I live in. It is so evil, vile, and destructive that we don't even recognize how evil, vile, and destructive it is. And yet it has permeated every part of our lives and our creation. And a good, just, and holy God cannot allow that corruption to continue. This is a hard truth that we want to ignore. We want to believe we're good. We want to believe we have a chance. We want to believe that I can do enough righteous work in which God looks down at me and says, you know what? You didn't even need Jesus. You did it all on your own. We want that because within our hearts, we want to still believe we are like God, yet we are not. We've been corrupted. Does it change your perspective of the teachings of Jesus when understanding what he's trying to do is to pull you out of that corruption? Maybe in popular culture, it's more like choosing between the red and the blue pill. Will you choose to live here and stay here and be a part of this and not be aware of the the cost to your soul? Or will you be pulled out? Will you be rescued? And will you see what you were created to be? There's a corruption. And in the midst of that corruption, God chose to rescue us. And when he did that, God made a covenant with his creation. Let me just, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on covenant although we're going to cover several covenants in this series. A covenant is basically this. I have committed to you, and when a covenant was cut, you cut it by sacrificing an animal. Blood would be spilled. So if you've ever heard the phrase, cut a covenant, 
That's literally what would happen. In fact, this is exactly what happened between God and Noah. Because after a covenant made with God, Noah sacrifices an animal. The first sacrifice that we read about. You cut a covenant. And this is what you would do, whether it be with God or whether it be with two people. In fact, a marriage was considered a covenant. Anytime you would cut a covenant, you and the other party, whoever that other party were, you would commit to something. You would say, I promise this. I'm going to do this. And then you would take a sacrificial animal and you would sever it, cut it in half, separate the two parts. And the two of you would walk between the two parts, making this covenant promise with each other. And the covenant was saying this, if I break my vow, if I break my covenant, let me done to me what we have done to this animal. I will not break my covenant with you. God chooses to cut a covenant with us through Noah. We read about it in Genesis chapter 9. God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. That's us, by the way. That's us. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you. The symbol, the sign, the remembering. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. In other words, the sign is not just for you and me. The sign is for God. He will look down and see the bow and remember his covenant. That is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. He does not say he will never again destroy all flesh. He says the waters will never again destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So his covenant is literally between Noah, all the living creatures that were with him, and all of their descendants. That's all of us. Now, if you want to read through Scripture, one of the consistent messages that we get through all of Scripture from Genesis 1 to the very end of Revelation is that God is coming to redeem us. He's coming to bring us back. He's coming to restore to us what we were. God in His goodness wants us to live in that incorruptibility. We are to put on the incorruptible. When we are talking about being saved, we are made new. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. When we are baptized, we are baptized In the way that Jesus gave his life, he rose from the dead and he became the propitiation for our sins. When we go under the water, that old person is gone, is dead, that lived in the corruptible, that was corrupted. They're gone and they're raised new because of Jesus. We have five primary covenants in the Bible. 
Five primary covenants, beginning with this one. This is the very first one. Go to that next slide, Jake. The first one is with Noah, the rainbow, his promise, I will not destroy you. He had favor. The second one was with Abram, who would change his name to Abraham. Follow me. I will make your descendants as numerous of the stars. Go to the place where I will show you. He says, I will be your God. I will cause you to flourish. It's his covenant with Abraham. The third covenant that we read about is the Ten Commandments, the covenant through Moses that says, ultimately, this is what it looks like to know me, to walk with me. This is what it looks like to live a life without corruption. This is what it would have looked like had you not sinned. We look at the law, and, and even when we read the law, there's a whole lot of don'ts in there. That's part of the human heart. We require a lot of just boundaries. Don't. But much of the law is about what to do. To live in this way in which you would have done without any effort. It was just the way that you were created. But now, because we have been corrupted and we live in a corrupted world, it takes effort to live in that way. And while we could not still overcome sin... The law through Moses gave us a way to be forgiven from sin through the acts of sacrifice. Because the wages of sin is death. Whether it be death by a flood or death by a sacrifice. Sin must be addressed. Sin must be answered. Sin must be atoned for. Then we have the covenant with David and he says, A Messiah is coming a final rescuer that will be the final rescue. And he will come from the lineage of David. And he does. In the fifth, Jesus, the new covenant in his blood as he describes it himself. This is the new. This is the covenant. The final covenant he is making with us that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can overcome this corrupted world. And we could again begin to return to being like God. It is a process of sanctification, that process of growing, that process of casting off, that denying ourselves, because when we don't deny ourselves, we naturally just sink right back down into that corruption. But we deny ourselves. We pick up our cross, the reminder that we have been redeemed. And we follow Him, which is leading us back into the place in which we were created. It changes the understanding of the rainbow. We understand the full story of the covenant of Jesus. The bow itself, it's a pretty thing, isn't it? It's very pretty. So pretty, in fact, that we lose the true meaning of the rainbow. The bow reminds us of God's promise. The interesting thing about the bow is that this word is not rainbow. We've given it that term. The word for bow is literally the same word used to describe a bow and arrow. A bow. So not a bow. Not a bow. A bow. Now we see the rain bow whenever the 
conditions are just right and there's enough moisture in the air. And what we know now is that light refracts through it in such a way to consistently and always demonstrate the colors in the same pattern every single time and as forever since this time. We understand what God is doing is he's demonstrating that this bow, this bow is a reminder that because of sin and corruption in the world, you are at war with me. We are at war. We are now enemies, but I don't want to be your enemy. God is a good God. God has chosen to redeem us. God says, I don't want to destroy you. I want to redeem you. I want to bring you out of this. I want to restore you to what I created you for. And because God is good, that is what he does. We look at the rainbow and we look at the, the implications of the bow in the sky. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible said this, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people, it was pointing up into the heart of heaven. So this bow doesn't just represent, oh, that's pretty. Oh, God promises he won't destroy us with a flood. No, what he is saying is, I will no longer point my war bow at you. I'm hanging up my bow and it points towards heaven. So who's it pointing to? Because there is one who would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. The sins of the world would be cast on him and God would draw his bow and shoot Jesus in the heart for us. The incorruptible Jesus, the God Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, was the story of redemption that the rainbow is pointing towards. Do we understand the bow in that way? It's a little different, isn't it? See, the bow is more significant than just that. We actually read in Scripture that you will find a rainbow consistently in three different places. We go through, we find that the covenant bow is going to be in the sky. We see it. God sees it. Did you know that consistently there is a rainbow in the throne room of God to remind him of this covenant with you? We read about it in Revelation 4. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven. With one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Consistently, eternally in the throne room of God, the God of justice, of creation, the God of holiness, the God who embodies love, has surrounded himself every moment with a bow to say, I am coming to redeem you. A reminder of the covenant in which he was not going to blot us out but instead give us away. By surrounding his throne with a rainbow, God has surrounded himself with a reminder 
of his goodness for us. The third place that we see the rainbow consistently is over Jesus' head when he returns. This is not a halo, but there's a rainbow over his head when he returns. We read about that in Revelation chapter 10. It says, And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. He's talking about Jesus. So I want you to picture this. I want you to picture how significant the rainbow is. It's not this, oh, it's a rainbow. That's so cute. Look, kids, it's the rainbow. We do that all the time. I don't know why we do that. It's kind of like when you see a cow and you have to look, right? The rainbow is a lot more important than seeing a cow, but we just, there are certain things we just respond naturally to. And with a cow, it's like, oh, look, there's a cow. I don't know why we do that. It's really interesting. I wish a sociologist would tell us why. We see a rainbow, we go, oh, look, it's a rainbow. It's so pretty. Oh, look, see the rainbow? The other day we saw a double rainbow. It was like, ooh, double promise. <laughs> double promise. That's so neat. So nice. You love the rainbow. You'll almost all, only and always see the depiction of a rainbow in a children's piece of art or a book or something like that because it's a children's story of God destroying all of life on the planet Earth. It's wonderful for children. It's wonderful. Yet that is not the story of the rainbow. The story of the rainbow is the story of God's warbow. Rightfully pointed at us. He took aim and he shot. Being a good God, rather than allowing us to be wiped out, he had favor on Noah. And he had favor on Noah's descendants. And thereby he has had favor on us. And he has taken his war bow and he has put it in the sky and he has put it in his throne room. Excuse me, throne room. I get my syllables mixed up. You know, I'd like to say it's time change. I'm not sure that's what it is. But. And he has put it around the head of Jesus when he returns. To remember the covenant of his goodness. I am coming back to bring you out of this corruption. I am coming back to restore you to how I created you. I am coming back so that you can experience this fully. I am coming back because I made you to be like me. I made you to be in paradise. I made you to live without sorrow. I made you to live without pain. I made you to live without anxiety or depression. I made you to live in fullness and joy. And to express that and to feel it and to know it always, which is why those in heaven are constantly worshiping his name. And that when we enter into heaven, that is what we will do. We will constantly worship because God has hung up his war bow. 
Instead of aiming it at us, he took aim at his son, and his son took all of the weight of our punishment, all of the weight of our sin. And he has been from that moment on saying, you can be restored if you want. I'm not going to force you to. But if you want, you can be restored. Jesus has made that possible. But you've got to believe in him. And by believing in him, we believe in God. And by believing in them and believing in their promises, we believe in what he has said in Scripture. And as we believe in what he has said in Scripture, we believe that there was a flood and it wiped out all land life on the planet. All the birds. Because that's what we deserve. But God gave us favor. I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what, uh, how you approach God on a, your daily life of prayer. I cannot spend much time with God without moving into confession. I can't do it. It's not because I'm just such a terrible person. I mean, that's what goes without saying. <laughs> it's because when I look at God, I can't help but see the rescue. And I'm thankful for the rescue. When we worship, we don't come and worship just because, oh, God is good. I'm supposed to worship him. Okay, let me worship. We don't do that. We look at him and we say, this is our rescuer. This is our creator. We read scriptures and we read it as if it's all bad news. I'm going to pick up my cross and follow him. But Jesus says, listen, this is the greatest honor you'll ever experience in your whole life. You will never be more blessed than when you're persecuted in my, for my name. I got to pick up my cross. If we truly believe the story, if we truly believe the story of God's warbo, how would it change our lives right now? If we truly understood the corruption in which the earth has fallen into, because it's not gotten better, I'm, you know, jump to the end of the story. It's not gotten better. It's the same corrupted place before the flood as it was after. <laughs> How do we live differently? You know, I've been saying for a while now, when we look at the Ten Commandments and we stop looking at them as in just precautions, and instead we look at them as in, wow, life is better when you do things God's way. It's a blessing to follow His law. Yet if that was the only way that we could be made right with God, that we could return to that incorruptible place, well, we all fail. It was not enough. The covenant with Moses was not enough. But instead, Jesus had to come. And as we do that, it changes the way we see our world, we see our life. It changes the way we understand our, our place. Let me wrap up here. The rainbow, God's warbow, is a reminder for us. It's a reminder of the depth of our corruption. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness and His desire to restore us. I don't think it's any... I don't think it's by accident that a rainbow only appears with the presence of light. Because light is casting out darkness. 
It reminds us what we were originally created for. We weren't created for this. We weren't created for this world. We weren't created for this reality that we live in where we hate each other. We weren't created for this place where we just want to get ours and we could care less about anybody else. We weren't made for a world of bigotry. We weren't made for a world of pain. We weren't made for those things. That's why we find ourselves in such a quandary when we're in the middle of it. Why, God? Why? Because we weren't made for this. I wish the story went, there was a rainbow and we were all restored. God just said, Noah, I'm just going to remove all sin from your life and we're just going to start over. I I really do wish God had done that, but that is not possible. Because if God did that, God would have to deny his justice. He would have to deny his holiness. He couldn't just overlook it. There had to be a penalty for it. Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is life through Christ. Does it change the way we look at the things we're involved in? The movies we watch, the words we use, the lenses by which we view people? Does it change our priorities, our goals, how we spend the time of a day, how we spend the money that we earn? Does it change the way we see God? Does it change the way we see ourselves? It is a reminder. It is also a reminder that God's patience came to an end once. His patience will come to an end again. This time not by a flood. But this time with Jesus mounted on a horse coming for our final rescue. When all the incorruption will be rooted out. It will be destroyed The wheat will go into the harvest. The tares will be burned. Those who have chosen Him will return to full incorruptibility. His patience with sin will come to an end again. Psalm 79, 8 talks a little bit about how we should respond to this. It says, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. For we are brought very low. I just got to say, and I'm not, I'm not good at this. I'm not a good person to mimic in this. But I just got to say, if you never had a moment where you are just brought low before God, I question whether you've ever seen God in His full radiance. Because on the occasions that I just get a greater glimpse of God, I just feel so small. <laughs> I feel so small. Now, this is not what God wants for me. God doesn't want me to feel small. God wants me to know without Him I am small. But He wants me to know that I'm redeemed, that I am loved, that I am His child, I'm a part of His family, I will be a part of Him forever. But when I see Him fully and I truly recognize the iniquity within me, it causes us to bow low. And I'm encouraged to pick up my cross and to deny myself and to follow Him. It's not just a reminder for us. It is a reminder for God. His covenant, His mercy, His love, 
His grace, why He created us. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions. I love the wording in Isaiah 43. I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. You need to chew on that this week. God is blotting out our transgressions for his own sake. And I will not remember your sins. You know, the rainbow is used as a very popular symbol now, a picture of diversity. And each of the colors is looked as an individual and separate and diverse thing. And together, a unity of diversity. That is not what God sees when he looks at the rainbow. God doesn't look at all the little individual colors and talk about how they're each unique and individual. God looks at the rainbow and he says, I made you. I love you. I'm coming for you. And this is my promise. I take my bow and I'm hanging it in the sky. Don't forget. Because I won't forget. The last thing I'll leave with you for this symbol is remember throughout this series, and we're going to be looking at several symbols, each one having different purposes, different reasons, different meanings. But for this one, remember who is saving us. But also remember what we are being saved from. And let us not, as Jesus encourages us, let us not be subject to sin as we once were. But let us be conquerors. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Pray with me, Father. God, I pray that we'll never look at a rainbow and just admire the colors. Though you're creative ability is unmatched by anyone or anything. Let us reclaim the symbol of the bow, not as a multitude of colors, but it was the beginning of the end of our war with you. Father, I pray in this room, those who are struggling with living in this corrupted world because we all feel just the darkness and the despair that is present on the earth. We will not succumb to it because you have come for us. You have put your bow up. You have shot it squarely in the heart of Jesus to take our sins away. You have blotted them out even from your memory so that we can be restored just as you created us. God, I pray that we would never become so callous to this great act of mercy that we just go about our daily lives like nothing has changed, like like it doesn't matter. I pray that every decision we make would be through this lens, every place we take ourselves, we allow our eyes to look on, would be informed by this image that we are deserving of death. And yet because we found favor in your eyes, because of your goodness, you have given us new life. 
I pray for those in this room that are having a hard time shaking off that old life. They still feel that they are in this corrupted world and they are constantly failing. God, you have promised us that you would make us new, that that we are new wineskins with new wine. We are a completely new creation. And God, I pray that you would just allow us to see how beautiful that gift is. But at the same time, Father, give us the ability to walk rightly and justly in a world that does not understand what that looks like. I pray that we would not only honor you, Father, I pray that we would live thankfully for your grace and your mercy that we see in the rainbow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.